When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In 2010, Ed Miliband shook up British politics by defeating his brother David in a most unusual battle for leadership of the Labor Party. He served for five stormy years as leader of labor, culminating in a crushing defeat in 2015. And in full disclosure, I helped advise him in labor uh, in that unsuccessful campaign. But I came to know Ed as a bright, caring, committed public servant who really took his responsibilities seriously. Ed came to the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics this week to talk about his experiences and the current state of British politics in the era of Brexit. Ed Miliband, great to see you. Welcome to the Institute of Politics. Um, your brother was here some time ago, and we so some of this history for faithful listeners of uh, of this podcast may be uh, familiar, but uh, still still important and interesting. I, I want to talk to you about your folks, yep. and their history, uh, which uh, didn't begin in Britain, yep, uh, but during uh, during the the, the war. Uh, tell me about how about their journey. Well, it's an extraordinary journey, and it makes me feel incredibly privileged. Um, my my dad and uh, his father left Belgium on uh, one of the last boats out before the Nazis arrived in 1940 and came to Britain, uh, leaving uh, my, my father's sister and his mother behind, and they ended up in hiding in a Belgian village, which took in, I think in the end, about 16 of our relatives, all of whom survived the war. So it was a small mm. village that sheltered them. Uh, my Your mo- mother's family was not as lucky. Nope. Uh, my mother um, uh, was born in Poland um, in a, play, a town called Częstochowa, and uh, she lost her father uh, in, a, in a camp, and I'll say something about that in a sec, but she um, was in hiding in a convent uh, with her, well, not with her sister, but the sister would, the convent wouldn't take her sister. Then eventually they were taken in by a Catholic family who protected my grandmother, her and her sister. Um, we only just um, discovered what actually happened to my grandfather, my mother's father. Uh, he, he died in a, essentially a concentration camp in a place called Heilfingen um, in, in Germany. Uh, and your mother, right did, at the your end mother of the did not know what happened to him? No, I mean, the, the family law was always that he died in Auschwitz. And uh, it was only by going to Yad Vashem by these two incredible, um, it's like secondary school teachers in this tiny German village, which had which had essentially kept this secret relatively hidden for a long time, that they were home to this concentration camp, labor camp. And uh, 
that 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 you know a mass grave was a, a tombstone was put up for a mass grave and then you know my grandfather was one of the people on it and when we went when I went to Yad Vashem as leader in 2014 leader of the Labour Party um they kind of gave us some information which then led us to, on the trail to finding out what actually happened and then we were later contacted by these two extraordinary people um German uh, teachers who um who invited us to come over and we went over on a family family trip so uh how much of this was discussed in your home when you were a kid how much were you aware of the struggles that your uh, family went through i mean not really uh you know very pretty i mean aware but but it was relatively um, it wasn't really discussed. I, 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 knew, I remember going to Israel. Was my grandmother, my mother's mother, lived in Israel um, for for a long period, and I remember seeing a picture of the person that was actually my grandfather, my mother's, uh, my, my grandmother's husband, who died in 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 the war, and saying, "Who's that?" Uh, and them being told who that was, but I don't think it was very, you know, made clear to me what had happened. Why? Why is that? I think for my mother, it was just too painful to talk about. For my mother and grandmother, I once overheard a conversation that my grandmother was having with somebody else where she was talking about the family law that he'd been taken to Auschwitz. Um, my father was more, talked more about it. And, um, and, and my aunt, her, his sister, who was in hiding in this Belgian village, and, you know, th- these... You know, being a family with of, of Holocaust uh, survivors, or you know, with with and, and indeed family members who died, you know, it casts a long shadow. But it also there are inspiring and extraordinary stories of human goodness mm-hmm. that comes out. Well, like the nuns who took in your like the mother. nuns, like this village. You know, the, the, the story of this village is is in ext- Belgium. In Belgium, is mm-hmm. extraordinary because. My and I hope I get this right, but my grandmother sold hats at a market in the 1930s because they were pretty poor. My my grandfather, this is on my father's side, was a leather maker, a leather worker, uh-huh. and um, there was a farmer also, or a farmer's wife, uh, farmer and his wife at, at this um, at this uh, market, and essentially the Gestapo were in um, Brussels. Uh, they took they they called in my grandmother miraculously they let her go but they said in german to each other we'll get her tomorrow and she'll lead us to the other family members she understood german and fled to this village Mm. um they were hidden in this village um by this farmer and his wife um and then gradually more and more of my family members ended up in this village and the village kept the secret that they had these jews in the in the um in 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 you know in their presence now you you're a a, you're a a secular you're not a a, a, you're not a religious person do you jews feel a sense of identity uh, given this history yes i do it's complicated yeah um but because my parents weren't religious my my mom's still alive she, you know they they don't they don't um practice um they don't go to synagogue <laughs> um so they were very secular jews and 
Um, you know, I married somebody who's not Jewish. Um, so, you know, I, I feel it, yes. And I, I feel it because of the history. And I think that makes one more keenly aware, for obvious reasons, yes. of it. Um, and, you know, in a way, I regret... Honestly, I regret a bit that I didn't learn more. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, not not in a sort of religious belief way, but in a heritage way yeah. when I was growing up. But, you know, my fa- my my parents' community was a sort of socialist yeah. left you, community. In fact, your father was one of the most uh, uh, noted scholars Marxist. on Marxism. Marxist intellectual, yeah. And, um, and he... <laughs> I think he started reading Marx, uh, well, probably in Belgium, but then also uh, he was a he joined the Royal Navy and was a um, uh, what they call a headache. He would wear headphones to listen to see if he could intercept German um, radio signals. I'm not sure he was very good at it, but uh, anyway, he, he seems also, like an important job. He, he, he I hope he was, was, I hope he, he was relatively he, competent. He, he was, uh, uh, but he would he he, he kind of I've, I don't know. He, and then he went to the London School of Economics and so on. So yeah, it, but but it's. Yeah, so so their community was a was a left community. That was what, you know, that they were the people in our household. I, I want to get back to that in a second. I did want to ask you something contemporary related to that. There's a bit a big to do about anti-Semitism among some members of the Labour Party, and 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 some of it's been directed at Jeremy Corbyn, who succeeded you as the leader. Uh, and I, I just wondered how you processed all of that. I think. Look, look. I think I'm very conscious that um, uh, not to give a running commentary on my successor, um, and I think that's I'm one just of, asking one, for a brief analysis, not no, a running commentary. No, no, I understand. I yeah. understand. Um, I think what I would say is he has been right to say because he's he said this very clearly recently. Look, we must be obviously zero tolerant of anti-Semitism. I think. I think he's right also to identify that there is a problem in in parts of the the far left, but it's, I emphasize parts, and and um, I think I believe it is a very small minority, where skepticism about what the state of Israel does, <laughs> totally, you know, wrongly, then sort of morphs into anti-Semitism, and that you know. It doesn't seem to me to be that complicated to keep the two uh, uh, distinct. So look, I think he's right to, to to take it seriously, and it's got to be taken seriously. I guess he got into it a little bit of a jam about some post he made back in 2012, some mural that you know I've depicted. Been, I, I haven't been there exactly, but you know I just think he, you know, he he said he didn't see the post. I, I don't believe he's an anti-Semite, honestly. Mm-hmm. Talk. Let's talk about your parents and their um, uh, and and their roots in the. In, in the socialist community and the, and the left in, uh, in London. Your home was a, a center of activity because your dad was not just a scholar, but he was a, a believer. I think he's, he's buried somewhere near Highgate Carl, Cemetery. Karl Marx. Right? Highgate Cemetery. Yeah, I'm not sh- I mean, I think it w- maybe it w- I, yeah, I think that's sort of coincidental more than. But but there was it, just space available. Well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, um, uh, but um, yeah. Look, it was a, it was, it was definitely an unusual household to grow up in, because politics was so in the bloodstream, and the people who came round and the yeah. Who were some of there were some noted. Uh, yeah. Um, so um, I mean, 
you know, the thing that really always stands out in my mind is that a woman called, uh, when I was about 12, a woman, I met a woman called Ruth First, who was married to, um, had been a student of my father's and uh, was married to Joe Slovo, the mm-hmm. um, general secretary of the South From African South Communist Africa, Party. Yes. And um, she was an extraordinary, vivacious, full of life person talking about the struggle in South Africa and so on. She was, I think, at that point living in um, in Mozambique. Uh and then a few months later, she was killed by a letter bomb sent by the South African secret police. Mm. And because they couldn't get at Joe and they got at her. Now, if you're a kind of you know, 12-year-old, and I remember coming downstairs and, and seeing my parents. about this. Yeah. I mean, I remember my parents in tears because, you know, this kind of close friend of theirs had been murdered. Um, and it's, you know, it's quite hard not to be, well, you either kind of say, I'm going to do something else or you get engaged. But, you know, I think the most important thing about my upbringing in this respect is that, and I try and do this with my own kids, is my parents, particularly my father, took us seriously, even as children, when it came to adult issues. Now, maybe that's more customary these days, but they wouldn't say when we were 11 and said, I think this, oh, look, you wouldn't understand, you know, wait till you're grown up. They took us seriously. And in fact, I remember these kind of towering people coming around to the house and me or David would sort of Your chip brother, in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they'd say, oh, I don't think it's quite that way. And then my father would say, well, hang on a minute. You know, I think he's entitled to his, <laughs> his point of view. And they'd be sort of slightly taken aback. Um, you know, so, so and I think that is a huge credit to them. And I think that's why we both got engaged in politics. But And also, I think it is partly... You know, this is not religious, but it is shares some uh, not religious in, in their in their case, but it shares some commonality with religion in that they felt, you know, I think because of their experience, both of them, you know, you should try and leave the world a better place than you found it. That was that was kind of a really important part of what life was about. Yeah, I want to I want to talk to your you about uh, how the both of you ended up. In politics, but you you also had uh, you had some time in the states. Uh, your father came to teach here. Became a big red because Sox yeah, fan. people people wonder how it is that. Uh, frankly, you don't sound like the typical Red Sox fan. Mm, I don't know. So uh, yeah, um, no. So I we my father was teaching at Brandeis University in Boston um, uh, in uh, when I was Waltham, seven. Mass, yeah, yeah, Waltham uh, in 1977, and. Um, and then I, and then he had a, an arrangement where he used to come back for a semester a year, and I lived with him uh, in uh, in Newton uh, when I was twelve um, for a few months, and I became a big, big Red Sox fan. Who was playing for the Red Sox back? Oh, God, then. Jim Rice. Um, oh yeah, Dwight oh, yeah. Evans, Fred Lynn. Um, Yastrzemski. I saw yeah. Carl Yastrzemski's three thousand three hundredth hit. I hope I'm right about that, but I, that's my oh. memory. Um, uh, Who's so, going to challenge that? Yeah, exactly. Um, so. Um, yeah, no, I uh, and 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 I sort of have followed it um, ever since, including you know the, I mean the Red Sox are quite a good parable of left politics, aren't they? Because uh, you know they they lost a lot, and then eventually uh, they you're won. Talking to, you're talking to a Cubs fan, so yeah, indeed, they're, 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 they're 88 better. years or whatever it was was yeah. a rather modest yeah, losing yeah. streak, the way we think of yeah, it. Yeah, so but. 2004 was a very very big uh, an important moment. And uh, you 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 went back uh, and you went to. Uh, Corpus Christi College in Oxford, and by your own admission, you weren't exa- exactly like engrossed in your 
studies, you became more, you were motivated as much by organizing. There was some sort of issue about rent. St- we, student rent. We protested rent. about the student rents. The yes. student rents, they tried to put the student rents up by 39%. So it was my, and I was the president of what I they called I hope you didn't it. let them get away with it. We that. didn't, no. Yeah. Uh, definitely not. Um, uh, we, I was the president of the what they call the junior common room, which is a student body. It's a relatively small college of a few hundred um, students, so that's the way the Oxford system works. And so um, it was my first taste of sort of political organising and political sort of leadership, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I did study as well. Um, I'm not. Uh, I'm not trying to. No, no, it sounds a bit offensive. Sorry, no, no, indeed. You're talking about uh, a guy who didn't. Okay, so I don't I'm, believe that. I'm, I'm sure I'm you not, did. I'm sure you're doing yourself a, down. Yeah. Um, but um, no, it was it was it was interesting because it was sort of co- you know I was kind of it was coalition building. I was trying to get the students to protest and demonstrate and do all kinds of things. It was sort of well, you were kind of raised in that tradition. So. I was raised in that tradition. Yeah, um, yeah. But you didn't. But when you left, you didn't go directly into politics. You kind of went into journalism. Yeah, I did. Um, Which is kind of odd because we'll get into it a little bit later. You're. Your views of the media are um, complicated, to say the least. Um, but well, but but what drew you to you? You were uh, you worked as a researcher on a show called A Week in Politics. Yeah, well, it sort of was more the politics than the journalism. I think is probably the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no, I did my degree. I didn't get a first. You know, the top. Uh, degree I got a t- uh, two one as an upper second and you know if I'd got a first maybe I would have done immediately done postgraduate work um, and I sort of thought what am I gonna do so I this job opening came you know was just advertised and so I thought I would apply and I knew lots about politics and I was quite you know I I was always driven by politics and I remember having this conversation with my my father died in 1994 and I remember having this conversation with him shortly before um, that and saying you know dad I, I it's politics that drives me, really, not academia. Um, you know. Uh, How did he receive the news? Incredibly well. I mean, it's re- something really important about him. He he had a sort of um, th- there was a there was a really one of the best things about him in relation to these issues was that yes, he was a Marxist. Yes, he was in some sense a utopian, although he wouldn't have categorized himself as that. But he had a lot of respect for people who tr- tried to get a Labour government. You know, he wasn't one of these people who said, well, look, let's make the crisis of capitalism worse by having the Conservatives in power for 30 years and then maybe the revolution will come a bit quicker, <laughs> you know. And so he said, look, I, you know, he said, I, I know that. I, he said, I understand that's what drives you. You know, no, that's and, and, and in a way, I think maybe I was seeking his permission uh-huh. that I didn't. Because, you know, one of the things about my household, our household was that as I said, there was respect for politics, but, you know, I suppose the, the implicit sense was academia was the thing that was really the great intellectual sort of challenge, um, the, great, the great sort of thing to do. So in a way, I was, guess I was seeking his permission. We're, we're, we're sitting on a campus, and yeah. uh, my, my wife's uh, father taught on this campus for 50 yeah. years and so on, and I got a, a feeling for the culture yeah. of that, and um, there, there, there. It can be daunting to grow up with a towering yeah. intellectual uh, figure. Did you feel weight of that? I mean, he he seemed like a pretty challenging person. Yeah, I don't mean that in a negative way, but just a big personality. You know. 
I don't know. I, I, it's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting question. I, I don't. I, I don't think he was. And this is again something I think about with my kids. At the same time as all these things are true of him, and I don't want to portray him as a saint. Far from it. At the same time as this towering intellect, the politics, all of that, he was the father who'd say he would always be very careful not to say, "I don't have time for you." Mm. And I, I'm very conscious of this with my kids. You know, being leader of the Labour Party, I often didn't have enough time for them. Yes. Um, you know, I would knock on his study door, go into his study, go, you know, see what he was doing. Was he on the phone? And he wouldn't sort of say, um, oh, you know, give, please, I'm thinking about, you know, Hegel. Uh, uh, I don't have time to play chess or backgammon or, you know, think about your homework. You know, it, it, it and that was really sort of, um, I mean, I think that is absolutely... You know that is a really important part of him as a as a father. It's interesting that you bring up you, the demands on your time when you were leader of the Labour Party, because um, one of my great and I've written about this one of my great regrets about my own career is the sacrifices that I asked of my family and my kids in particular, um, because you can always persuade yourself that what you're doing is so important that you just have to make time for it, and you realize that. You can't go back and make the time up for uh, your kids. Now I've met your kids and they're they're splendid. So nice they, 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 we can uh, ascribe it to your wife, Justine. Definitely, you she must gets, have had some she hand gets in this. Ninety five percent of any credit, but, you know. But but here's the truth. Um, and perhaps I'm I'm sort of jumping ahead. But you know, I wish I'd won the election in 2015, yes. the general election. But there's no doubt my relationship with my kids has been transformed. By losing the general election, yeah, um, because I was, the, the, and and maybe other people are better at this than me. But even when I was present, I was kind of somewhat absent. Yes, no, that's exactly right. You become so absorbed that even when you're there, you're not there. That's that's exactly. And I think right. it is the curse of modern politics. And I don't know whether there's a you know maybe as I say maybe some people are better at it than others, but you know. It is just so. I mean, it's not just I couldn't have come to the come with them to America on a trip, which I'm doing at the moment, um, which is which partly what brings me here. But it's that you know, even the the daily routine, you're just not around. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, yeah, I just think it's um, look these. They're they, what nine, nine and ten now. No, these are they're eight and seven. Eight and seven. Um, so they were really young when you uh, yeah. three years ago when you lost exactly. that election. Exactly. Did they have any sense of what had happened? Not really. I mean, I think the 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 first the first day when we took Daniel to school, I think it was on the Monday. The, the election was on the Thursday, and, the, and I resigned as leader on the Friday. Was sort of you know parents sort of you know crying in the playground. So it was sort of he kind of knew that something was up. But uh, um, and he said, "What are you doing here?" Yeah, well, no, well, <laughs> something like that. Um, but um, you know, no, in general, in general, not. And I think. You know, I think that is important to try and protect your kids from, yeah. you know. and it's hard to do. And cameras outside, you know, if Justine had to say what is the thing she hated most about me being leader, and there's kind of relatively long list, I think, uh, <laughs> um, you know, cameras outside, you know, having cameras outside the house, yeah. it's just such an invasion, it feels like, feels like yeah. such, and I'm not saying it's, yeah. it's, you know, wrong or should be stopped, but it feels like such an invasion of privacy. This was the conversation I had with Barack Obama when he was thinking of running for president and I told him that my fear for you isn't that you're going to lose it's that you're going to win and that you're going to have to uh, and that your life will be transformed and you won't be able to go back and it and it's not just a decision for you but your family 
I mean, I think I also, at the time, underestimated the effect on Justine and my kids, or Justine more than my kids. I mean, my kids from my absence, but Justine from the pressure. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think it's partly probably was willful in the sense, or subconsciously willful in the sense that, you know, if you thought about that, well, what are you going to do? Right. Um, so you just keep going. Um, but I think it's a, you know, it just is really, really hard to be the, being the spouse is worse, I think, I think worse. Well, because especially because she had do. her own, uh, yeah. she had her own career. Yeah. She's a, Environmental fine lawyer. Environmental yeah. lawyer, yes. And, um, and part-time judge as well now. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, you know, I, when I first met her, I then became, we, we were together, I became the climate change secretary. Yes. She had to forego some of her work as an environmental lawyer because of, you know, potential conflict of interest. Then I became leader of the Labour Party. I mean, you know, I yeah. owe her a huge amount of love yes. and everything else, but just I also owe her a debt for I'm what, sure if she were here, she wouldn't ask for rebuttal time on that. She would not, no. <laughs> So uh, let's talk about that, that your uh, trajectory. Uh, you got hired by uh, Harriet Harman, mm -hmm. uh, who uh, was uh, uh, working for Gordon Brown then. Yeah, she was his deputy as a... And was she already a minister then? Well, we were in opposition. Oh, you were in opposition. So it was 1993. She was an MP. Yep, she was a deputy finance spokesperson. Um, and she, for people who don't know, has been a towering figure fighting for gender equality in Britain, British politics for 30 years, yeah. longest serving Labour MP, uh, right. you know, extraordinary, longest serving female Labour MP, sort of extraordinary advocate. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I want I want to park that thought because one of the things that struck me is that a number of the people who ended up serving under you as leader were the people who hired you, yeah. facilitated your career, and that how uh, and what what kinds of challenges uh, that posed. Uh, but just jumping ahead, I mean, you uh, you advanced, uh, you uh, uh, became uh, I guess chair of the council on. Of economic advice, yes, for for Gordon Brown, mm -hmm. and then became an economic advisor to Gordon Brown, um, and uh, you know, and I was obviously there for sort of um, uh, ten years of New Labour from opposition, three three or four years into government, you know, mm -hmm. six, six six years, and then a um, and then a seat uh, opened up, and this intrigues me for those of you who are not uh, British. Um, in, there, there was actually a, just a small biographical insert, which okay. is that I went to Harvard then for eighteen months and um, taught mm -hmm. sort of uh, on social justice. Oh, so, well, a a a, a, a um, course called "What's Left: um, mm -hmm. The Politics of Social Justice," and we I think we had um, we 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 did something that people don't normally do. We put up posters around the campus uh, with a photo of Karl Marx, Tony Blair, and somebody else. Can't remember who, and uh, we got lots of students. Um, yeah. And I had I had great fun. It was it was it was a great um, it was a great training. I mean, it was a great. I know it sounds like an odd thing to say, but it was a sort of in a way a training for politics because it was going to speak in public in a every week. You'd have to come and tell the students something they didn't know, um, and you'd have to sort of fake it if you were kind of thinking I and don't know very much. And you were just either. miles away from Fenway Park, and it was very convenient. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so Harvard facilitated your baseball exactly. Jones there. Exactly. So you, you ran for the seat in 2005. Yeah. Explain to me, I was asking about this the other night. Yeah. Uh, 
Duncaster North. Doncaster North, yeah. Um, I'm not. There was from a there. vacancy. You weren't from there. You applied to run there to uh, to the party, yeah. uh, and you were tapped to run there. That is like that's sort of alien. I mean, it happens here. Obviously, mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton's ties to New York, Robert Kennedy's were tenuous, but they were you know famous. But this happens often in British politics. You identify a constituency, and then you go and run. It for does, it. and so, look, lots of people don't like it for reasons I understand because they say we want a local person. I mean, my story is this, which is uh, or, or what happened. Or my story is this. Um, you know, this. I, I was very ambivalent about becoming an MP. I wasn't sure I wanted the limelight. I wasn't sure I wanted the sort of scrutiny, all of that stuff. But then I'd kind of been an advisor for quite a long time. I wanted to do something else. And, you know, people were trying to persuade me that it would be something I could do. So this seat opened up. And uh, because, uh, unfortunately, the, um, my predecessor got very ill. And... Uh, and I thought, well, I'm not. There are people who are local who are going for it, so I probably won't get it. And it's the vote of the party membership, three or three or four hundred party local party members. And the first conversation I had with somebody um, there, he said to me, "I don't know why you're ringing me, mate. Uh, you're not local." Anyway, an hour later, he was still on the phone to me because I said, "Well, look, uh, I'm not pretending I am local, but maybe I can do something for this area um, because you know of where you know what I'm about as a person." Um, and I then. You know, there was a four or five, three or four week, I think, a campaign where I would go around, talk to each of the party members, try and make my case, and then I won, and I was selected. And um, it's and thirteen years later, you still represent absolutely, like and I'm incredibly proud to be to be the MP. But there. you still don't live there. Well, I li- I live in both places, so I have a house there and a house in uh, mm-hmm. um, in London. Um, but you know, it's th- this constituency link. I'm sure it's true here too. It's such an important thing for keeping your feet on the ground, and we'll, maybe we'll get later on to Brexit. My constituency voted big I time. We, I think we must big, t- yeah. big style for Brexit. Yes, you know, most of my friends in London are remain. Right. Will remain. Yeah, you know, I have a totally different perspective as a result of that. And take any. Because yours is a very working class. Yeah, and take any ex mining ex mining constituency, and take any issue, and it you know is such a sort of. Such an important kind of bellwether for me, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And uh, once you were once you were elected, then you started moving up in the party uh, hierarchy. And as, as you mentioned, you you had uh, a couple of jobs. Uh, I don't know what the minister for the cabinet office and chancellor of the uh, Duchy of Lancaster sounds quite posh. Lancaster. It? Yes, I feel I feel like I should bow. You should I, I definitely. I don't know what definitely. what was that. I was job? annoyed that you didn't bow. <laughs> um, uh, what was it that? Job? It's I'm not still, the same. I'm on still a trying to work anyway. that out. I'm still trying to work that out. Basically, it's a relatively ceremonial role. You're sort of the Queen's manager of the Duchy of Lancaster. Huh. Um, so you're sort of the Queen's appointee, but the people who really manage it are not you. Yes. So it's it's kind of farming I mean, did, did land. Did the Queen know about things. this? I think maybe she wouldn't have approved, but uh, I think I did get my seals from her at one point. Oh, did um, you? Yeah. Um, so uh, that must yeah. have been surreal. It was. It was. It was surreal. I, I, you know, I had a number of discussions with her, including when I was climate change secretary. Um, but um, so yeah. So there we go. Um, I was chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, minister for the cabinet office, and so on. And that put you in the cabinet. And th- yeah. And then you know the, the the sort of most substantive job I had was as a cabinet minister was the. Um, 
uh, was the job as climate change secretary. Yes. Uh, which I did for two years, including the somewhat ill-fated Copenhagen uh, summit. Which was the first attempt at global treaty. Yeah, to 2009. Um, and uh, worked closely with the Obama administration. Um, fantastic. And you raised, called, you, you raised a Britain's commitment in terms of greenhouse gas Yeah, it was sort of emissions. a relay. It was a sort of relay because my brother had been was, the... Who was the foreign minister. Yeah, he, well, he had been the uh, sort of the environment secretary, and um, eventually I took over the bill he had started, the Climate Change Act, which put into law Britain's commitment to cut emissions by 80%. Mm-hmm. And um, it had been fifty before. That sixty had been, yeah. No, um, and uh, well, it, well, there hadn't been any law until he came along. Then it got raised, and then it to, to eighty. And um, so, uh, yeah. And and you know, I, I continue to care massively about this issue. Let me sure. ask you a question. Yeah. Now, you you know what's obviously you're you're a student of what's gone on with the U.S. and Trump, uh, w- President Trump withdrawing the U.S. from from it from the agreement, the Paris Accord that the world... How much impact has that had and will it have in terms of the world's ability to... And some of the other decisions that have been made, including uh, uh, lowering fuel efficiency standards from where they were raised by President Obama. I mean, look, I think it's bad. I mean, it's bad. It's bad. You know, there are people who say, well, the U.S. states are doing good work and California and all that, and that is absolutely true and full credit to them. But there is not a moment to waste in this mission. <laughs> and, you know, China has gone on leaps and bounds. I mean, one of the reasons why Paris worked in 2015 and Copenhagen didn't was that the political will had changed. You know, China, India, mm-hmm. um, you know, the U.S. and the progress that was made under President Obama. Um, it, it was just a different set of things. But... But, you know, we are in a race against time. We are we are genuine. In a, you know, we've already got one degree of warming. And, uh, you know, it, 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 if we're going to meet the very ambitious goals of Paris, two degree, you know, keeping warming to below two degrees centigrade, uh, never mind one and a half, which is the sort of outer limit of ambition, uh, you know, we have to have every – the stars have got to be completely aligned. And so, how, and so it how, does set us back. How How are your – uh, arguments on this received in Duncaster, which you said is a former mining community? Well, I would say um, I think people people broadly get it, but they ask the question, is it going to be a just transition? And I think if, if I'm honest, I think this is one of the things that continues to elude the wider environmental movement, which is how you combine climate justice and social justice. And, and it, you know, if I'd be self-critical, I think probably we haven't paid enough attention to this. That, that partly climate change has sat in its own box. Yes. You know, this is the thing we've got to do because otherwise, the, you know, we're all going to be, you know, the, the planet will be destroyed. And it hasn't really enough been combined with a sense of, yeah, but how do you do this equitably? Well, and, you know, there is, there is an argument to be made that uh, a green economy creates jobs. The problem is that they don't always create jobs for the people who've lost their job. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's sort of, it's been too much of an afterthought, I would say. Um, and and it needs to be more, you know, front and center. So 2010 comes, Labor uh, had uh, been in office uh, uh, and... Uh, it was kind of a disastrous time. Um, talk the about banking that crisis, election. you mean? 
No. Oh, you I'm mean for labor? The economic cri- for labor, yes. In the uh, the election of 2010. Well, you know, sort of political... Gordon sort of Brown had taken... Political time, Brown. you know, you, you've been in power 13 years. Gordon Brown, who, who, you know, I'd been an advisor to, close to, still am, took over after 10 years of Tony Blair, really at the sort of fag end of the administration. And it's very... I think what it taught me was it's very hard to reinvent in office. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean... In an odd way, he came into his own with the banking crisis. Yes, because it was sort of the moment. Yeah, he made, was he, he he was an absolute. Yeah, it, expert it was the on, moment on made his, for him. Yes, um, but I think it was hard. It was hard, I think it was hard for him because he'd been at the front line of politics for like twenty years, and uh, you know there he was trying to reinvent a government um, and renew a government, <laughs> and. Um, you know, it speaks in a way to people's scepticism about him that Cameron didn't, David Cameron didn't win the election outright in 2010. He had to have this coalition with uh, the, the Liberal Dem- Democrats. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, so it was sort me, of... So t- talk to me a little bit, just for a second, about, mm. uh, uh, about Gordon Brown versus Tony Blair as political leaders and personality. Gosh, that's interesting. Um, so, you know... These were two people who had been joined at the hip when they came together in 1983, both elected in 1983, Labour's worst election defeat for, sort of forever, um, worked incredibly closely together. 1994, uh, John Smith dies of a heart attack. And He's the leader of Labour. Labour, Labour, leader of Labour Party. And it had been long assumed that Brown was the senior partner, but, but, but all the sort of mood music party will was for Blair. And... Uh, you know, theirs was an extraordinary partnership because it was incredibly creative. It did very good things. I've got my criticisms of the government, uh, that government, and I had my criticisms at the time. But, you know, it renewed the public services. It did stuff on yeah. anti-poverty and so on. And they were, so, they, 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 you know. So for it was, Americans, it was, it was at the same time as the Clinton era. Exactly. And there was that same sort of feeling about it. Yeah, that and they, there was lots of good things. And yet it was built on an incredibly dysfunctional relationship between the two of them, born of what happened in 1994 and, you know, Gordon's resentment and, you know, whatever, whatever the sort of... And there was, was there a tacit understanding that someday Tony would cede, Blair would cede power to Gordon Brown? I get, yes. I mean, yes, I guess, but, you know, it's But then he gave him the car and it was sort of out of gas. Who knows, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the, it, was, it was kind of late. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was sort of a, yeah... Um, mm-hmm. I think that's probably a good, the car was out of gas was probably a good way um, of putting it. Um, look, I have respect for both of them. And in a way, one of the things about me is that I try and be respectful of people from all sides, you know, particularly within my party, but even beyond my party. You know, I, I'm maybe the only one of the few people in the Labour Party who can talk to, you know, Neil Kinnock, Jeremy Corbyn, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, uh, you know, our living leaders. Um and you know I can get on with all of them. Yeah, and I sort of but, see good. I'm, but, I'm not trying to, you know, but I just, you know, they've all got something to contribute. But the, um, well, and you're among the group, so that's another thing. But sure. but the, um, but the reality is that you had a a fight for leadership in 2010, in which in which you, in many ways, prosecuted new labor, which was what the Brown. Blair, the Blair Brown uh, project was uh, for uh, 
Well, I'll let you explain. Yeah. Well, I was you... the beyond, I was definitely the beyond New Labour candidate because I felt New Labour was right, had done good things, um, uh, as I've said, but I think it got some things wrong about being too relaxed about inequality, about uh, deregulation, um, uh, about uh, a, a number of things, particularly domestically. That's, let's leave aside Iraq, but but just a number of things domestically. Oh, that was a big issue. Well, when I say leave aside, I mean I'm talking about the domestic yeah. agenda. Um, and, and Iraq was part of my criticism, but, but you know, um, it, just on the domestic front, and I, so I had a, and, and I felt this at the time. And if you talk to Tony or Gordon, they would, I think, say this. You know, I didn't suddenly come along and think in 2010, how do I position myself for this thing? I always felt I was, I was part of the new Labour government, but I didn't feel I wasn't new. I didn't feel personally new Labour. Now, the presumption was that your brother David, who was the foreign sure. minister, would succeed to become the leader. And in fact, you know, when I, I remember when we were there in 2009 with uh, President Obama and he, uh, David was at the table at the bilat. And I remember someone saying, you know, he'll probably be the next leader and so on. And that was the presumption in Britain, certainly was his presumption. And you ended up in a, in a battle for leadership with your brother, which yep. was kind of, I know we already, we already uh, certified that, uh, you're a secular person, but it's kind of a biblical story. Uh, so uh, tell me about that and the, the decision to do that and the cost of doing it to you uh, personally. I mean, it was, it was a very hard decision. Um, and, you know, the way I think about it is, of course, I wanted to be leader, but I did it because I felt I had a different thing to offer I had a different thing to offer ideologically about where the party needed to go but more important where the country needed to go I thought there were big things that needed to be tackled you know about inequality uh, um, about what kind of country we were trying to build and um, it was an incredible you know it's the hardest decision I've ever made and it was incredibly tough but I suppose I was uh, you know we talked about Brown and Blair earlier they weren't brothers they aren't brothers but it stored up an awful lot of trouble for the party that one of them stood and the other didn't. Because it was a deal, or wasn't it a deal, or where was it going? And it created dysfunction. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, it was very, very hard to make that decision. But I, I made it, and, and honestly, I don't regret it. Because I think I would have regretted... M I think I would have regretted more thinking, I, look, I had, I had, you know, an agenda, a thing for the country, and I decided to kind of hold it back. You won by less than 1% of the vote. It was a very close fight. Sure. Uh, and you, uh, so that, you entered with that, you formed a, 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 a cabinet of your own. M many of the people in the cabinet were, as I mentioned, people who were a senior to you when you started yep. in the party. Uh, some of them uh, were uh, were not with you in the fight. Uh, well, in a way, I mean, by design. Yeah, I mean, team I, arrivals kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. But the the first part is more more important to me than the second. Um, and you won kind of an inside game because that's the way the party fights were. 
And, you know, uh, uh, Lucy Powell, who's now uh, one of your colleagues, was your, your, your chief of yeah. staff. She said there was no honeymoon. There was no honeymoon. <laughs> nope. And so um, I guess my question was, in some ways, were you uh, sort of doomed from the start because of the way this thing was born? No, I don't think so. I, I honestly don't think so. And, um, and look, I, I, I helped you in 2015, so I have a vested interest in saying you were doomed from the oh, start. I see, so I get oh, no, I see. No responsibility. Well, it's certainly not it. your responsibility. Look, <laughs> I, I, you know, one of the things, and I, again, I don't want to jump ahead, but one of the things that I've been very clear about since 2015 is, you know, I was the leader, I made the decisions, I take responsibility for having lost, and I don't think it was doomed. Because there were moments when I was doing a lot better. We were ahead in the polls. I know the polls turned out to be wrong, but even allowing for that, we were ahead. You know, I, explaining a defeat, you said to me very nicely after the election, you're never as dumb as you look when you lose or as smart as you look when you win. I um, learned that through hard experience. Yeah, but it was a good, I, I've carried it around with me <laughs> uh, ever since. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's sort of, I, I, I think it's hard to explain, but I think it's a combination of, People didn't buy me as compared to Cameron. Let me ask you about that because, you know, in, in yeah. Britain, uh, money plays less of a role in campaigns, mm -hmm. but the British media plays a, a very they weren't friendly to me, a no. big role. They weren't friendly to me. But, but you know what? Look, they did, I was going to say they didn't buy me, but I, I, think, I think there's a more substantive um, thing here, which is, and maybe it goes to the wider challenges of the, set, of the left, is that I think I was caught and maybe this is implicit in your question about the way I won, I was caught between those who wanted reassurance, who didn't find me reassuring enough, and those who wanted radicalism, this is the voters, who didn't find me radical enough. Mm. Now, actually, oddly enough, a lot of my 2015 manifesto is now being proposed by Jeremy Corbyn, some of it implemented by Theresa May. Who, who did answer the radical call. Jeremy, yeah. Yes. Um, and so... And I often felt when I was running, actually, it's one thing I did feel at the time, um, it's we've got a big, bold analysis of these problems of inequality, of the next generation doing worse than the last, of the problems the country faces. Are our answers bold enough? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think, well, I don't think it was written in the stars, mm -hmm. basically. Uh You, you've had a running battle with Rupert Murdoch, who's a powerful figure in Britain. He's been in the midst of trying to acquire Sky News, which is a major institution there. He already owns uh, quite a few assets in media there. Uh, why, uh, why have you opposed that? And uh, what's the status of that? And just as we started talking, the European Union apparently uh, invaded uh, their uh, his offices, uh, uh, and uh, we don't know what the substance of that is, and is that likely to affect uh, this issue? I will say you're on top of breaking news here at the yes, Axe Files. Are. Yeah, I know. Um, Where are we? We're going to get the weather the, in a second. Your finger on the pulse. <laughs> um, um, so I don't know. I mean, it's obviously uh, dramatic news, this European Commission raid, but I don't know what it's in connection with. The, the broader context, I... I, my run-in with him started in 2011 when uh, they were exposed, uh, his newspapers having, or, or the News of the World's having hacked the phone of a, a girl who turned out to have uh, been kidnapped and, and, and killed, yes. Millie Dowler. 
Um, it, it led to a whole yeah, set of criminal, criminal convictions, a big inquiry and all that. Um, he was at the time trying to take over Sky News. He currently owns 39% or his company, Fox, owns 39% of it. Um, he then withdrew the bid at the time, you know, with great humility and all of that stuff. Um, partly Parliament forced him to. Um, but he's come back. And I think Rupert Murdoch's got a lot of influence in Britain and he doesn't need any more. And so I'm in a fight with him um, about whether it's going to go ahead. It's with the regulatory authorities uh, at the moment. Um, he seems quite irritated by me. It's a cross-party group of politicians. So a former Conservative Chancellor, Kenneth Clark, uh, Liberal Democrat Vince Cable, and my colleague, Lord Faulkner, former Lord Chancellor, um, all taking this fight on because we just care about public discourse. And, you know, to put it simply, we don't want Fox News in the UK. You seem almost giddy about the fight. I, I, it reminds me of Franklin Roosevelt uh, said uh, during his battles with uh, Wall Street, so the malefactors of great wealth hate me and I welcome their hatred. But, you know, the thing about this was that when he launched this bit in December 20. Uh, 16, everybody said to me, oh, well, it's just going to go through this time. There's nothing we can do. And if there's one thing I learned, maybe it's from some combination of Gordon Brown and my father, is you don't sort of, you don't take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. You don't sort of say, oh, well, this fight's too big a fight to take on. Let's just sort of sit this one out. I don't know if you know this, but he's got quite a bit of influence in American media as well. Indeed. And yeah. that's what, you know, we don't want, as I say, we don't want Fox News. Um, and Fox News is a standing example of the kind of media you don't want. We have quite strong rules on broadcasting, actually, yeah. in the UK to try and prevent that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, Rupert Murdoch has got such a long track record of circumventing rules that I think, you know, he owns lots of our, he owns the largest newspaper group. Uh, you know, he gets radio interests online. You know, he just, enough already. Yeah. What about the performance elements of politics? Uh, you know, you're someone who's steeped in the substance yeah. of it. Uh, but you know you were being judged as a as a as a performer, and you know there was the famous bacon sandwich yeah, yeah. incident uh, where you were choking on a yeah. bacon sandwich. You got caught by the yeah. camera, and and as you say, with choking, a hostile with choking a host is a slightly too strong, but it looked like it. Yeah. With, a, with a hostile media, those things go viral very quickly, and and they served a meme. But it's what's really interesting about this is that they tried to attack me on my agenda. He wants to take us back to the 1970s, you know, when I would propose a freezing energy prices or, you know, taking land away from developers who sat on it to build public housing. And they'd say, you know, that, and it didn't work, the ideological attack. And so they sort of went for a character attack. He's weird. He's this, that and the other. And that sort of had an impact, you know. But um, Did it bother you? Yeah, I mean, well, I think it bothered me that I lost. I mean, it didn't bother me at the time. I, I sort of thought it was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I thought if I'm going to lose the election over a bacon sandwich, oh, for goodness sake, I don't think I lost over the bacon sandwich. I think it's deeper. I think the other thing I would say, I think, you know, I take full responsibility for what happened. I could have made different decisions. I've said that I think I could have been bolder. I think there's also, it was, it was a bit of an uphill struggle in part because it was the first election the Tories were facing. And the kind of British people think, well... The, the, first re-election. Yeah, first re-election, sorry. You know, the, the sort of default option is to give you another 
give you another well, another thing happened in the election, which was there were all these cross currents. You had a Scottish National Party that was, yeah, which was, a, which on, was on the rise. You had Nigel Farage, who was sort sure. of the Donald Trump of 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 Britain, who was uh, talking about uh, breaking free from yeah. Europe and anti trade and some of the themes that have now animated Brexit, Trump, and so. And you on. also had David Cameron, who was willing to call a European referendum. Which you think um, with, you, you with, oppose to put, it, to put it very mildly, too little regard for the potential consequences, which I wasn't willing to do. And I where's, that all, gonna, where's that going now, by the way? Now, uh, that, badly, now that you're at Brexit. Badly. Uh, how's it going to end? Uh, I fear not well. I mean... I know, but what is not well Okay, mean? well, let me explain. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I... And we talked about this a lot. We haven't... I haven't talked about your excellent advice you gave me, but, you know, we talked a lot about the European thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I was clear it was the wrong thing to do for the country because it was an issue that 15% of people cared about, but it was going to suddenly become, if I'd won the election, and I talked to Tony Blair and others about this, I, it would become my sole focus. Mm-hmm. Now, that was when I thought I would w- we'd win the referendum. So I was not in favour of the... Um, referendum i was for remaining in the european union but but we lost narrowly 52 48 you might say as somebody said to me recently here how can a country on one day decide to sort of change its future without any kind of constitution or process or anything but i'm afraid that is what happened we went into it saying it was a one-off i think it's very hard to redo i'm not in the redo camp my constituency as i said earlier voted very significantly for brexit so we're gonna have to make the best of it um, and that means, in my view, you respect the referendum result, so we are leaving, but you seek as close a relationship as you can outside the European Union in relation to trade and foreign policy and these other issues. And it is a, it's going to be an imperfect answer, but I think we're sort of this is the card we've the, the hand we've been dealt. Uh, Theresa May had her numbers had ticked up a little, be, and the supposition is it's because she had the opportunity to handle something that was sort of in her wheelhouse, which was this uh, poisoning of these two uh, Russians uh, with nerve gas, presumably by Russia. And she was pretty tough uh, in response. First of all, explain why so many Russians uh, settle in London and why it's become a hub of uh, activity for Russians. Well, look, it goes to big politics and economics, which is that I'm afraid the British model for economic success has partly been, let's just attract as many rich people as possible, never mind sort of the provenance of their riches. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and not and it, taxing them. And uh, we had this absolutely crackers um, thing called the non-domicile rule, which allows which you, you to you tried be, to change when you yeah, were running. Yeah, uh, which, which means you can be sort of resident and... Uh, um, but so-called not domiciled, so you don't pay, pay, pay proper taxes. And the argument in the Treasury was always, oh, well, the Greek tycoons will leave. Well, anyway, the Greek tycoons have been replaced or supplemented by Russian oligarchs. Mm-hmm. and Without much oversight. Without without proper oversight. You know, you've got um, properties being bought. I think it's something like 80,000 properties in the UK which are bought through anonymous shell companies based in UK tax havens. I mean, you know... If there's one good thing that might come out of this dreadful poisoning, uh, it's that now there's some more focus on these wider issues, and maybe we're going to do something about it. But I mean, it is. I mean, it is. It's it's bad, and it's not good for the country either. I mean, it, you know, I think the price we pay for having these folk there, what it does to the housing market, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is not good. 
Has she been tough enough on Putin? I mean, I think she's been right to act. But I, I can't sit here and say, I'm not going to be critical of her because I don't know quite, I, I, it's hard to know how you would do what exactly needs to be done. But I think, look, the world faces a massive challenge in relation to Putin, mm-hmm. um, which is, can we act in concert? How do we act in a way that really sends a message to him uh, on some of these things? You know, I mean, this is, it was an hour. The, 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 the mass expulsion of was, diplomats was a was, good thing to do. And yeah, she was the it was a good thing that, to do, yeah. but it was, it, as you say, as you imply, it was relatively modest. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think, like the Magnitsky Act, mm-hmm. um, which people have talked about, um, sanctions against the oligarchs. Yeah, sanctions mm-hmm. against people. I mean, I think we've got to look at all of that big spectrum of options. In uh, in in 2013, you led as the leader a move to block uh, uh, Britain from joining in a, a, an attack on uh, Syria after the use of chemical weapons, and that had a reverberative effect because President Obama felt he had to go to Congress, and uh, Congress rejected rejected that as well, and he ultimately didn't move uh, forward. We, we're now, as we sit here, we're, we're experiencing new evidence of chemical attacks by the Syrians, and there's been, since that time, extraordinary suffering, millions of refugees, many, many people killed and injured. Uh, do you ever look back at that and say, maybe I didn't write, make the right call? I mean, of course I think about it, but but no. Um and look, I think the thing that people sometimes forget about this was that the proposition on the table was a strike, not a strategy. And the thing that I always felt was the lesson of Iraq was that if you're going to engage in military intervention, it needs to be part of a strategy. And, you know, ultimately, that's why I had the scepticism I did about the proposal uh, on the table. Um, I know President Obama, in an interview, I believe, in The Atlantic, also said in retrospect, he felt that the proposal because was, you a, think that you was would a sketchy... Because, because both Britain and the US would have become uh, engaged, engaged in a way but, from which there was but no... But it wasn't even a proposition to get rid of his chemical weapons mm-hmm. because you couldn't hit the chemical weapons stockpiles. Um, that wasn't the proposition on the table. And so, and, and you know, after all, President Trump also did, did actually bomb uh, last year and yet... And, you know, th- this is not to take away from the appalling suffering that Syrian people have faced. And that, you know, and, and what was happening in Syria is ghastly. And, of course, there is a collective responsibility in the international community for that having happened. But I don't buy the argument about 2013. Um, something else that you did as leader was you changed the party rules uh, and you made it possible for people to sign up by a membership in the party and participate uh, in the leadership vote in in it changed the way leaders were elected and it really empowered Jeremy Corbyn uh who inspired this movement a lot of young people to come into the party but he also is as left probably as you've seen in some time uh there um is 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 Corbyn in a position is he the right person to lead labor into an election yes um and he's proved that in the 2017 general election. I mean, it's really important for the, your audience to realise, first of all, how unlikely it was that Corbyn would become leader. But secondly, how the whole political class got the 2017 election in Britain wrong. I mean, this was a guy languishing on 25% of the, on the, in the polls who got 40%. 
you know, who nearly won the election. Now, he didn't win the election, but... By energizing people, you felt. But by, but by offering bigger answers, by offering bigger answers than had previously been available. And look, I do think this is the, these are the contours of politics today, which is that people are really hurting. You and I talked about this a lot. I think that was one of the reasons we ended mm-hmm. up working together was we shared this sense, good work isn't rewarded, young people feel they can't get on, there are these vast gulfs of wealth and uh, income. And I think unless the left offers big answers and is for the change, not the status quo, and you know, in a way what I'm saying to you about myself, and you could also say this perhaps about what happened in the US in 2016, is that I was too much the status quo. I didn't feel I was, but I wasn't enough change. Mm-hmm. Um Unless you offer that big sense of change, you're not going to mobilize people. And and if you do offer that big sense of change, there is huge potential for mobilization. That's why Corbyn did so much better. You know, there are Labour MPs around me in the House of Commons who, who would say to you, I had no idea I was going to win the election. I was going to be here until 10 o'clock on election night and maybe 11 o'clock and maybe midnight. And I was, you know, I'm, I'm sitting on a majority of 5,000, 10,000 you know, hired by British standards in a, in a parliamentary seat. I had no idea where the voters came from. I mean, it is, a, it is, a, it is in that sense a remarkable election, 2017. We've already um, certified that polling has been a little bit unreliable. Off, yeah. Yes. But uh, I, I looked at some recent polls, I think from YouGov maybe. What was interesting to me is that uh, much less hospitable to Corbyn himself as a leader than to the Labour Party. And I'm wondering why that is. I think that's gone up and down, to be honest. It may have taken a dip recently, mm-hmm. but I think it, it's, it's, it's been uh, up and down. Look, there's no question that um, he faces media challenges, which I face, but he faces, a media, if you like, even bigger. The Daily Mail, one of our biggest selling newspapers, ran a 13 pages on why he was a terrorist sympathizer just before the uh, election. Yeah. Um, the Sun equally, you know, the the the, the mainstream media has got it uh, uh, infirm. He's faced problems inside the party. He was such an insurgent that he's faced problems in the party. But, you know, I kind of think it's my part of my role, just speaking for myself, not as a member of his shadow, you know, cabinet, his shadow government, but as a backbencher to try and support him with ideas. It's interesting you say that because I'm wondering what it's like to go from being the leader one day to a backbencher the next. I mean, just psychologically, how does one work one's way? It's like that, that episode of The West Wing, you know, where Arnie Vinnick. You you don't watch The West yes, Wing? Do you? Yeah, no, of course you do. Uh, where Arnie it's Vinnick been goes off the in air for a few years, and he but... says and he says coffee for Arnie, and they say coffee for Ernie. He goes into Starbucks. You know, it's slightly like that. Um, look, it's hard. I mean, it's definitely hard. Coming to terms with defeat is hard. Um, I've got into the podcast business. Yes, um, I wanted inspired, to ask you about inspired that. By, inspired Reasons by the Axe Files. Reasons to be cheerful. Inspi- Reasons to be cheerful is the name of the podcast. Yeah, inspired by the Axe Files. Um, but the, the reason... Um, you know, Reasons to be cheerful is not the name I came up with. It's the name my co-host, Jeff Lloyd, came up with. But I think it's a very good name because we talk about interesting ideas that can change the country. From, you know, housing ideas to ideas about land taxes or the universal basic income or transgender rights. What are the things to feel positive and optimistic about that can build a left future? And um, I said when I resigned as leader, uh, I may not be leader anymore, but I can still pursue my ideas. And that's what I sort of care about. And um, Do you see yourself re-entering, I mean, in a leadership role? 
as a leader, as leader, not as well. No, I presume not as no. leader. But what about as a member of the cabinet? If there I mean, is not another at the Labour mo- government, not at the moment. Yeah, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, you know, but you I want to stick with politics. You have no definitely, and and you know, kind of right from the get go after twenty fifteen. I suppose I felt a number of things. I felt I'm not going to blame anyone else. It was my defeat. I'm going to be to try my absolute damnedest to be loyal to my successor because I know how tough the job is and I know it's not great when people who used to do the job are, you know, sort of not being, you know, not not being positive. And you don't feel you got full support from your predecessor. No, I'm not saying that, but you know, I'm just sort of You are I, saying that, I, but we'll let it I go. I know how I know how I know how yes, tough it okay. is when you have yeah. noises noises off from any quarter basically. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and and thirdly, I'm not going to let this. It obviously defines my life in one sense, but I'm not going to let the defeat sort of, you know, define kind of who I am for the rest of my life. I'm gonna because there's all kinds of ways you can contribute in politics. Now, the third part's been hard, and in a way, twenty seven the 2017 election was my moment of release a bit because the last election was not my election, and mm-hmm. it sort of meant I kind of went. Came came through it, but look, to answer your question in a long-winded way, it's it's really hard. Yeah, what did you learn about yourself from it? Um, what did I learn about myself? You the, were saying it was interesting. You were saying before that everybody says, "Gee, if everybody could see you the way you are now, you would have yeah, won that I know, election." I know, I know. That people often write into me in the podcast and say, "I want to apologize for not having voted for you. If only I'd known what you were like." And you know, on social media, people often say, "Oh, why wasn't he like this before?" You know, I was—I I could have been looser, I guess, as leader. I've le- learned that. Um, but what, what did I learn myself, about myself in the sort of a, adversity context? Um, that my family was, Justine and my kids, incredibly important uh, sort of uh, rock, rock and ballast to me. Um, that you, I need a pro, I need a, an engaging project, which the podcast is part of, as well as my Nothing constituency. Nothing better than podcast. Sorry? Nothing better than Nothing podcast. Nothing better than podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, Prime Minister may be slightly better, but, you know, <laughs> um, close run thing. Less trouble, though. Uh, yeah, the podcast. Yes. Yeah, no, indeed. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, so, and, you know, engaging in ideas. And also, and also, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about being a leader is, okay, you get recognised a lot in the street. You get a much more positive view of the electorate than you would get reading a newspaper. The number of people, I mean, I partly sustained, I've been sustained by my family, but also all the nice people who come up to you on the street and say, look, I just wanted to say, I'm sorry you lost. Or I mean, sometimes I was comforting people who were in tears on the street and I was sort of saying, well, gee, it was me that lost. Uh, but, you know, people are nice and people tell you interesting things about their lives and what's happened to them and so on. So I think it's a combination of all those things. Well, I appreciate you telling us about your life and uh, I'm happy that you're hanging in there, man. I, you know, I, you, you and I have had long conversations about this. A service is important. It's not just about like who's up and who's down, and you know what what title you bear. It's the chance to get things done that might have an impact on the future, impact on people's lives. That's a that's a privilege, and it's it's great that you didn't walk away. Well, thanks. And, um, you know, at the risk of mutual back scratching, you know, 
uh, the reason I was so proud to have you working with me was because people said sometimes he was a political consultant. He's not. A, you're not a political consultant. You're somebody who cares deeply about social justice and things I care about. And that's why it's great to. It's great that you worked with me, and it's great that you're a friend. And that will continue. Thanks, thank Edmund. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.